Hello, members, friends, and neighbors of Peace Lutheran Church in beautiful downtown Puyallup, Washington, to episode six of Together in the Word on Pioneer and Third, where we are six feet apart, yet face-to-face with the challenge and promise of Holy Scripture. Uh, Of course, we're only six feet apart when we're out and about uh, to do uh, essential things, Uh, which means, of course, my guests recently have joined me on the podcast over the phone, and I'm grateful for um, your willingness to do that too today, Susan. My guest today on the podcast is Susan Peterson, who is a new member of Peace Lutheran Church as of this past year. And I thought it would be fun for the congregation and our friends to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, so thank you for being on the podcast today. Okay, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Good morning, by the way. Or good afternoon. Yeah, what time is it? Yeah. Good afternoon. Yeah, I, the, the, the hours kind of blend together. The days kind of blend together. Who knows what time it is? Um, Susan is also, by the way, a, uh, a candidate for deaconship in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, or ELCA. And, and uh, pastors and deacons are both uh, on what we call the roster, the rostered ministers of the ELCA are pastors and deacons. And pastors uh, perform the ministry of word and sacrament. Deacons perform the ministry of word and service. And there are some distinctions there that maybe, Susan, you want to tell people about. But uh, but Susan is in training. She uh, And you're going to get to hear a little bit more about her current phase of training for deaconship in the ELCA and the interruption that has taken place as a result of uh, the outbreak of COVID-19. Um, in, to the end of you know getting to know you a little bit, w- would you be willing to just tell us a little bit about your life and your work and your family? Sure. Uh, well, to begin with, I'm retired. Um, I was a teacher, math and science teacher, uh, for about 16 years, and prior to that, I was um, in public relations, uh, marketing, communication, advertising um, for um, healthcare organizations, hospitals, health insurance companies, um, and even a couple of corporations. And I, I had some years when I was um, running a consulting agency in in the public relations field. So I've got kind of a spotty weird background. Um, and I came to uh, a place in my life where I realized that those skills were something that were called out to do something for God's church. And that's where the the deaconship connection came in. And um, I had a talk with my pastor at the time, and was pointed in the direction of the ELCA Southwest Senate um, to explore the notion of becoming a deacon. And um, I am in process. It's it's a several-phase process, actually. And there are certain things that you have to do um, and have finished before you are actually... Um, accepted as a deacon candidate and I'm right at the end of those preparation things and once you're accepted as a candidate then there is some theological training that has to happen through a seminary and that is um, yet to be started and at the point that you have finished that um, you receive a call um, and at this point, ELCA ordains deacons. 
Um, a couple of years ago, it was consecration, but the decision was made that the level of preparation and education was on a parallel track with um, church pastors uh, and the ministry of word and service became an ordained position, a, a rostered position, like ministry of word and sacrament, which is pastor's ordination. So um, what I have been doing lately is serving as a chaplain resident at one of the local hospitals, and halfway through that chaplaincy training, um, we hit COVID-19. And because I was in training and I was not an employee, the hospital um, released me from hospital duties. Um, so I've been sitting waiting to pick up my chaplaincy training, uh, which has been kind of abrupt, actually. Um, I, I went into that CPE, chapel professional um, experience, chaplaincy experience, um, expecting that it was another piece of preparation, and it turned out to be a really rich experience, and I am, I'm having some real separation issues with being away from the hospital right now, so that's where I'm at. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sorry that the, that your CPE program has been interrupted. That's often CPE is, is uh, spoken of fondly among uh, folks who are training for either ministry of word and sacrament or word and service. And so, I, you know, it's a, that's a real grief for you to have to give up that experience and the, and the group of people with whom you were, you were doing your learning. Well, and it's, it's a time of great crisis. Um, there, there are people that are really suffering and are physically separated and even separated from being able to see the faces of their caregivers. And it's a time when, when spiritual support is really critical and it's hard for the patients, it's hard for the staff. Um, and my little piece of pain in this is minuscule to how many people are out there really in need of chaplaincy care. Um, and and even their pastors can't get into the hospitals That's to right. serve. Yeah. So. Thank you for sharing that bit of your life with us. You also um, are uh, currently looking after some little ones. Would you like to tell us about them? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I have four grandchildren who live locally, and um, their mother is working, um, and their their dad um, is working intermittently, but also home some. But uh, with working parents, they need care. And the daycare center, the, the three little ones were at, um, closed for a time, and of course the the schools are closed, so all four of them are at home. And it's a rolling circus, I have to tell you. God I, bless I, you. <laughs> I really understand where the, the parents who are struggling with, with uh, schoolwork at home are having trouble, because I'm right there in the middle of it with you. Oh, thanks for doing that for your family and yeah. and uh, and for uh, 
being in solidarity with parents who have kids at home. Uh, but it's also a joy. I mean, there there is a great pleasure in trying to fit three small children in your lap while you're reading. (laughs) Oh, that's a wonderful image. Thank you. Um, One of the questions I've been asking each guest on the podcast is to reflect a little bit, and you've already sort of started to reflect a little bit on your grief over uh, the suspension of your CPE program, but what are those things that you're doing to get through this time yourself, Susan? How are you coping? Strangely enough, um, I don't find the isolation uh, that a lot of people are complaining about um, to be that difficult. And I think part of that is um, my nature is is quite um, in, introverted, and I ne- actually need and crave time alone in order to refresh and be ready to be in contact with other human beings. Mm. Um, So that this time for me is frankly a little bit like going to a monastery or a retreat center Mm. and having that contemplative time, Mm. having that meditation time, Having time to read books that have sat on my shelf for months I haven't been able to touch. Mm. Um, and and it has been a real blessing to have that um, because I usually have to fight for that time. Sure. And um, then when I'm ready to go out, whether it is in contact and, and essentially phone chaplaincy, if you will, uh, with members of several congregations that, that I'm associated with, um, I am able to to be centered in those con- conversations and be present for the folks that I'm talking to. And when I go to take care of my little ones, I I can be there and fully present for them. That's and wonderful. Then come back and renew. Um, and I know that's not the story that many, many people have. I know. And, you know, there are days when I get a little stir-crazy, too. But but I, I enjoy my own company. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, maybe you're speaking to uh, the experience of a few folks who haven't felt that they could voice their relief at having some time in isolation that maybe they might not have gotten otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's true. The the flip side of it is that when I do interact with with people, I'm I'm pretty fully engaged and very focused on what's going on with those folks, and and I take in information about people in many many ways. It isn't just verbal conversation. It isn't just. Um, parallel play, if you will, enjoying an activity together with somebody, it is really being and drilling down into what's going with with that person, Um, watching how their eyes move, watching the expressions on faces, watching the the body language, um, and being able to, to touch someone's hand, to you know, on at, at points, hug people to you know that 
that that total body experience of interacting with another human being and that I miss intensely yes you know as much as I love the online services uh, the the Skype conversations there is a distancing that happens of course with electronic contacts and I find that really hard I feel like I have been blinded and can't smell and can't taste and yeah. cannot feel the, the the touch. Yeah, and I miss that. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those two sides of one coin in your life, and and um, I appreciate hearing um, your your thoughts about your personal life. But I also wonder about uh, your thoughts when it comes to sort of our collective life and, and what this time, this time that, you know, really is a crisis, as, as you've said in many ways, uh, what what is going to be the outcome of this? If, if you had your say and you could kind of dictate some of the, some of the uh, end results uh, or the long-term effects of this time in quarantine, what would be some of your hopes for how we would come out of it? Well, I I think there are some ups and some downs. Um, I think one of the things in our frenetic world that has been lost is the patience with um, doing things that take a while to do, that take deep thought. I think we have been living in a, a culture of instant reward. Hmm. Um, it's easy to go out to the grocery store and get exactly what you want whenever you want it. And we are learning to wait. And I think that's not a bad thing. Oh, wonderful. Uh, We are learning, again, how to do crafts and to do reading and to do gardening that takes a while to get it done. Um, We are learning to interact in ways that don't have the instant reward of a video game. Sure. We're learning those things, and I'm hoping some of that will carry over after people are out and about. And we are also learning that we can do with less. Hmm. We not only don't have to have it instantly, but maybe we don't have to have it. Wow, yeah. Um, one of the, the really nice side effects of the, of the sequestering is that our world is not as polluted. Yeah, that's true. I'm seeing on the internet uh, photographs of views from cities that you haven't been able to see for years because the pollution was so bad. You know, and that's cleared even in this small space of time. And maybe that's something to be appreciated and and fostered for when we get beyond this. Um, I think we've also learned that you better make connections with people today because they might not be there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, to live in the moment. Um, if you're going to talk to somebody, talk to them now. Mm-hmm. If you're if you need to settle a problem with someone, settle it now, because you may not get the chance again. That's really wise. I know, and and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, and 
And I think also that this is going to be a longer process than most people would hope. Um, and we're going to have to support each other in ways that that we have not. Um, you know, there are, There's a division in our society between the haves and the have-nots. And there are many people that walk that line between survival and not survival uh, pretty carefully. And we're seeing the fallout right now of of a business that is built on acquisition and and spending our money on on basically entertainment um, and how much of our economy is is put there by people who deliver those services and now are out of work and we yeah. need to look at how we interact with each other how we build our business to be more equitable mm-hmm. uh, and maybe there are some hard lessons that we're learning here mm-hmm. and it, even beyond the time when we're hiding from the disease we'll still have to recover from the economic fallout and we're going to have to do it together because if we don't do it together we're all going to fall together yeah that's really wise I- i've been thinking about how the obviously the inequities that are so apparent in this time have always been there they've just been easier to hide and or, mm-hmm. or easier to forget and you you just simply can't forget the needs of a neighbor who would love to be working but can't because their job no longer exists in this time and uh yeah you, you've, you've spoken really really eloquently about that uh the need to either either kind of thrive together or fail together in, in an economic sense and a social sense thank you yeah and i've also discovered on a, on a very personal note you know because i've been involved in a deaconship study and in the chaplaincy um ministry i've become acutely aware of how hard it is on the people that are are supporting folks who are hurting mm-hmm. um i have great ad- admiration for the clergy who are working so so hard to keep community together and the amount of hours that it takes to do that beyond even what it would take to do a normal weekly sermon and gather for coffee for your Bible studies. I mean, it is so much harder to do it under these circumstances and it puts so much stress on clergy. And at the same time, churches are struggling anyway to keep doors open and this just makes it so much harder and those people who are taking greater advantage of spiritual support through the online services and whatnot i'm hoping that they will be able to extend that into in-person connection with church and community mm-hmm. um and i'm hoping that the, the pastors are are getting something back from the congregation um, because so much goes out and so much is demanded um, from them and it's it's a tough road to hoe and mm-hmm. um, you know pastors need their support too <laughs> yeah we certainly do the uh, you're speaking to one of my great hopes which is that there are ways in which this uh, sort of forced 
tra- transition to exclusively online uh, connections among members of a congregation, uh, online opportunities for prayer, online opportunities for uh, the proclamation and hearing of the word, the administration of the sacraments. This is a total reinvention of the ministry. And, and one of my hopes is that there are ways in which, although it, it can't replace the gathered community, the physically gathered community, I mean, that there might be new connections that get made as a result or connections that are strengthened in ways that are unanticipated. And, and you know, whether or not uh, folks who might happen upon a congregation online end up becoming connected permanently to, permanently to that congregation, maybe this, maybe this is a, a moment, a Kairos moment, if you, if you will, uh, for, for God to break through into a person's life in a way they didn't expect. Anyway, of course, there's no way to manipulate that or, or, or cause that to happen. Um, but, but of course, online communication is, is vaster and wider uh, and does maybe cast a, a wider net for folks. So that's my prayer too. Well, Thank you. And, and I think that people are, are discovering that they have spiritual needs that they didn't really identify before. Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah. we're moving so fast and we're doing so many other things that, that sometimes you don't have the four breaths in, the, in a row that it takes to say, oh, and by the way, there's a piece of divinity that I missed here. Mm. Uh, sure. You know, and I think some of that will go on too. I think people, people will seek out that that spiritual connection because they've discovered they needed it when they were alone for a minute. Yeah. Thank you. Um, This podcast uh, is intended to introduce uh, members of our congregation and, and, and community and partners in the ministry. Uh, But it's also meant to dig a little bit into the gospel story for the upcoming Sunday. And this Sunday, the gospel story is one of my absolute favorites uh, and it is the famous story of the the road to Emmaus, the resurrection, the post-resurrection story in Luke. So with your permission, I'll go ahead and read that story, one that's probably familiar to you and to, to um, all of you who are listening. Uh, and then Susan will have some conversation about it. This is from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now on that same day, Easter evening, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. When they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it was now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some of our women, some some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of them 
who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Thanks be to God. So when we study the Bible at peace, we usually use three really basic questions as a framework, and they're not meant to um, constrain conversation, but rather to open it up, to give us kind of a jumping off point. And those three questions are, what stands out to you? Uh, What questions do you have? And what will you take from this text for today? Shall we go ahead and start with that first question? Hmm. So what stands out? Um, one of, well, there's a couple of things that stand out, but one of them is if these folks were part of the group of people that were close to and surrounded Jesus, why didn't they recognize him? Why was it that it took them so long to get it? Even though it was obvious that what he said to them was hitting home, it took until they actually sat down and had a meal before they said, I know who you are. Ah, wonderful. Yeah, uh, you you asked about the disciples and sort of their their relationship to Jesus and like how is it that somehow he's mysterious in in resurrection uh i have a really basic question that maybe goes back one step which is who exactly are cleopas and this other person uh we don't really know anything about them they're they're sort of not among the 12 uh apostles but they are clearly identified as disciples, so they're certainly a, a, you know members of the movement, and only one of them is named. So who's the other one, and what's their relationship? That's uh, that's something that always stands out to me that only one of them is named, and yet there are two of them, and neither of them is an apostle. Um, I I had a very uh, a strange analysis of this, and uh, the writer said, "Well, it has to be Cleopas and his wife." Uh, yes. They're coming back from the Passover, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't two men. Maybe it was a man and his wife. And That's actually a, a quite 
common interpretation in the arts and it makes perfect sense. It's also related to Luke's tendency to uh, portray uh, aspects of the story in both um, traditional masculine and traditionally feminine terms. I mean, he'll do that too. So it's not out of the realm of of possibility, that's for sure. And it also would honor uh, the fact that women were, of course, uh, numerous among the, the first followers of Jesus. I love that. Yeah, I'm always going to find the feminine in a story. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, Uh, that raises, of course, the question, why wouldn't Luke just go ahead and say that? Um, But here we are. Now we get to talk about it and speculate about it, which is fun. Yeah, well, I just figured it was because I didn't know how to translate it from Greek. I couldn't find it in the English version. (laughs) Uh, You know, the other thing that has stood out to me this time around, because I've read this story so many times, it always amazes me that there's something that stands out to me or that strikes me in a new way uh, that it never has before. But this idea that um, when Jesus interprets the scriptures to the disciples on the road while he's talking, it's about prophets, right? He says, starting with Moses, who of course is considered the great, you know, prophet of Israel, And uh, all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself. So he actually aligns himself really closely with the prophetic tradition in this passage. It's not just any and all scriptures. It's the scriptures that are prophetic scriptures. And of course, that's consistent with Luke 2. When Jesus, you know, sets out his mission statement, he reads from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. So his first first sermon is a sermon, very short sermon, based on a a really important prophetic passage. So the fact that Jesus is identified and then identifies himself among the prophets, I think is, the fact that I didn't notice that until just now is is kind of funny. Well, and I also think that, that the name that was thrown in here, the Cleopas name, uh, may give us a clue to what's going on, too. And that is, when that name is translated, it means proclaimer. Hmm. Uh, and my sense is that when they went back, they didn't keep the story to themselves. Certainly not. They tell everybody right away. Right, exactly. So that leads to my my second question about this, and that is, as always, I keep asking, you know, is, is this a narrative of what really happened, or is it a story that is told to us to tell us somehow how... We live and recognize Jesus and what we do with it. That's a wonderful um, question for all of Scripture, I suppose, isn't it? mm -hmm. I think that the story of Emmaus is so rich with detail that it, it must be, it's a surplus of meaning that it provides us with. So even if there are aspects of this story that are based on the memories of those who were involved in witnessing the resurrection. It certainly can't be, the meaning of the story certainly can't be restricted to a simple factual memory. Uh, this, is a, this is a sort of a, a, a story from, the, a memory from the heart, right? This is a way that the heart remembers uh, 
perceiving the risen Jesus in the midst of grieving disciples at the table, right? Perceiving the risen Jesus, accompanying them at their worst moment and reminding them of the promises of their scripture. I mean, it, it's, it, it's this, the meaning is so beyond the facts of the story that I can't help but think this is really a, a, a wonderful way to think about the way that scripture functions in a narrative fashion to inspire faith. And and this meeting also is a parallel um, with the events of the Last Supper. I mean, these guys or these these people, whether it's guys or or a man and a woman, their eyes were opened when the bread was broken. Beautiful. Which is, of course, what we say about Holy Communion, that, that Christ is truly present with us in that meal as well, that our eyes are opened to Jesus' presence in the breaking of the bread at the Eucharist. You know, one of the other things that um, strikes me, and uh, I needed, you know, originally I sort of needed a little help to get there, but every time I hear it uh, again, uh, I'm... I'm reminded now that this story prefigures our own pattern for worship, that the, the pattern for Christian worship that we, that we follow that goes way back to the second century, probably, uh, is in, in, large, in a large part based on this story, uh, or at least the, the series of events in this story. And I, I'll read you a quote that I read that I, I think it really sums this up really well, uh, the commentator says every Eucharistic service repeats the story of Emmaus. So if you think about coming to church, we are walking together, metaphorically. We welcome a stranger. We hear the word. We share the meal. We recognize at our table the risen Christ and we go to tell others. That's from an Augsburg Fortress resource called Sundays and Seasons. But the idea that that this this story is a way to think about our own weekly gathering around the table where Jesus is not only our guest, but also our host who feeds us, whom we recognize, and then who sends us out, in effect, to go tell others the good news. That makes a lot of sense. It also... It also makes me wonder that if in sharing the bread, we not only recognize the risen Christ, but we also recognize the Christ in the person who is beside us, mm. receiving the broken bread. Beautiful. We see the Christ in each other. Absolutely. Well, and the primary metaphor, of course, for the the communion of saints in the New Testament, or at least in Paul, is the body of Christ. We are each members one of another, right? So we are, in fact, uh, Christ with and for each other at the table, and then, of course, in the ways that we love and serve each other. Wonderful. Do you have any other questions? We sort of, we, this is what happens a lot when we, when we talk about a, a passage of scripture, um, according to these three questions, they don't always stay separate. We've already started asking some really good questions and making some good observations about how this story might speak to our lives. But do you have any other kind of lingering questions, anything that you're wondering about? 
Um, this is kind of a strange practical historical question. Um, I've been poking around in, in the history of Christianity, and one of the real mysteries about this story is where is Aeneas? Mm. Uh, because there's, there is a lot of controversy about whether that town actually existed huh. at the time of Jesus. Um, and that then again goes back to the first question that I asked, which is, is this story um, metaphorical? Or is it historical? Wonderful. Do you have a Do you have a compelling answer? <laughs> well, um, it, one question leads to another question. Sure. And it, it's that way in science too. Of course. Uh, but um, there are stories from surrounding cultures um, there is a, a story from Roman culture that talks about men that were traveling that were met by Romulus you know Romulus and Remus the founders of Rome yes Romulus was killed and after his death he in this story appeared to these two and gave them instruction about um, operating in the kingdom, he called it, and gave them instruction about how to operate Rome, essentially. Wow. And there's enough parallel there. And then you look at the geography around Jerusalem and the place where some scholars, some historians think that Emmaus might have been actually was... Um, the place where the Maccabeans first won a battle about 200 years before Jesus. So choosing a place that was that close to Jerusalem that was marked by the Maccabean victory would have meant something to the Jews that heard the story. So... It was taking a familiar story from a competing culture and placing it a place that meant something to the Jews and then placing it with an underlying story of resurrection of Christ would have made it familiar and acceptable. Wow. That's a... It's strange, but... (laughs) That's a wonderful speculation. And... uh, it raises for me that question, which is maybe the second half of the first question that you asked, which is, what difference does it make if a story is factually verifiable or if a story is rooted in the memory of Jesus' first followers, but also, uh, you know, an embellishment to some degree, to one degree or another? What difference does that make? And you, you have me thinking about... Um, because of course, in our sort of post to our post enlightenment mind, uh, if truth is verifiable and if it's not verifiable, then it's not true. That limits the capacity for people to experience deeper meanings of what what is true and what is not true. And of course, you know, to those of us who who adhere to biblical truth, we must accept that that the narrative is in and of itself true, uh, regardless of facticity. In other words. 
what powerful experience or what powerful truth does it have to convey regardless of the historical or geographical details? Uh, really important well, question. In, yeah, in either version, I think the kernel of spiritual truth is that in the sharing of the bread, we see Christ. Hmm. Either way you get to that, mm-hmm. that's where you get. Yeah, that's true. The, the, the presence of Christ in the shared meal is is a is the yes. the climax of the whole story. And then of course all of the related details, you know, the the burning heart when you when you can sense mm-hmm. when you can sense the truth and the hope of of the scriptures that Jesus is is, you know, expounding on for you. Your heart is burning. This really powerful experience of of being moved and transformed. And then the exhilaration of rushing back at midnight to Jerusalem to give the good news, to to have your hope renewed and a new sense of purpose. I mean, those are all really true experiences uh, Mm -hmm. that we continue to affirm in our tradition, even in 2020. And so that's a way in which this story will live forever, at least for me. Um, But that's a really beautiful, beautiful speculation. Thank you. Uh, it kind of it's we've started again falling into the next the next prompt, which is um, what is it that speaks most deeply to you today, Susan, from this um, beautiful gospel story from Luke? Um, what how does this word take flesh in your life today? I think for me, it is the connection of um, the shared meal. Um, and it, it became apparent when, on Easter, when our congregation celebrated the sacrament of, of communion together, virtually online, but we were together. And regardless of how we laid our communion tables in our individual homes, we were together breaking bread. And to be then part of the risen Christ and to take in both the, the collective experience and the personal experience wonderful. of sacrament, yeah, wonderful. I think, has become really important. And, and that's what jumps really out of this story. However you get out the story. Yeah, and I mean, it is not lost on me that the 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 grief around this story, maybe for me, uh, is that there are aspects of it that are impossible in an age of quarantine. I mean, we can't come alongside one another, strangers or friends. It doesn't matter. We can't go on a trip, right? We can't share a meal with people who aren't in our own households. Uh, at this point, at least not yet, um, under the you know current stay-at-home order, uh, so that there are these sort of yearnings that emerge from this story. That the basic ways in which Jesus becomes apparent to them, uh, the the thoughtful conversation, the, the meaningful, hopeful conversation, and then this shared meal where suddenly they get a glimpse of him in his resurrected state. They suddenly get a glimpse of the hope of new life. The, you can't do that uh, except, you know, except at home now. And so 
the the fact of Holy Communion drawing us together in kind of a mystical sense, even when we can't be physically together, is is also really really important for me uh, as a leader of our congregation. But also, I, I would hope just as a as a disciple, as a person who's kind of yearning for something to hold on to uh, in this really frustrating, really grief filled time in quarantine. Thank you. Well, and it it also points to the fact that that each of us individually and personally meets divinity, but there is a very much richer meeting when we meet divinity in community. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, this is a story initially to some degree about isolation, right? These are just this is just a, a splinter pair, and, and you know if they are married, then maybe they are quarantining together, so to speak. Uh, but uh, th- th- they're isolated; they're disconnected from the community suddenly by their by their loss and their shock and their grief, and the whole pattern of moving away sadly from Jerusalem, kind of dispersing, and then there's this pregnant pause at the dinner table where suddenly everything changes for them and then they're very quickly re-engaged to the community right they're they're reconciled literally physically to the community that that feeling of that's that sort of um, flash of understanding and the the sort of new hope and purpose that that follows I hope is is sort of akin to the feeling that we'll all have when we do eventually get a chance to come into contact with each other again as a congregation. But in the meantime, we need the hope of resurrection to sustain us. And I guess one of those ways to, to sustain that hope is to share communion remotely with each other. Absolutely. 